0: this podcast episode was generously funded by two anonymous donors if you would like to support the podcast in similar ways please contact hadley kelly at hkelly at pbk.org thanks for listening Welcome to Key Conversations with Phi Beta Kappa. I'm Fred Lawrence, secretary and CEO of the Phi Beta Kappa Society. On our podcast, we welcome leading thinkers, visionaries, and artists who shape our collective understanding of some of today's most pressing and consequential matters. Many of them are Phi Beta Kappa visiting scholars who travel the country for us, visiting campuses and presenting free lectures that we invite you to attend. For the visiting scholar schedule, please visit pbk.org. Today, it's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Joe Aldi, professor of the practice of public policy at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. Professor Aldi is a university fellow at Resources for the Future, a faculty research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research, and a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. His research focuses on climate change policy, Energy Policy, and Regulatory Policy, and he's exploring ideas about how to integrate climate change investments, clean energy spending, resilient infrastructure, and the like, into a future economic stimulus and recovery program. Welcome, Professor Aldi. Fred, thanks for having me. Good to have you here. So we've got a lot of interesting economic and environmental questions to cover, but I want to take you back to the beginning, or almost the beginning, to your your interests in environmental law. Now, if I have it right, when you were in the first grade, you won an America the Beautiful
1: <laughs> contest for a poster of against littering. Is that right? That that's right. So so back in the day, there was this uh, America the Beautiful campaign intended to reduce the the amount of littering we saw on on, on the roadsides uh, uh, around the country, and and I uh, had a, a poster of stand the can. Uh, he was a trash can, and he wanted you to put your trash into him as opposed to throwing it outside, say, your car and onto the roadsides. Was this a general interest
0: in the environment, looking back on it? I mean, you wouldn't have called it an interest in environmental policy at the time as a little boy. But do you do you draw a line back that far, do you think?
1: Well, I, I think there are a couple of things growing up. One, I grew up on a farm, and so I, I was accustomed to being outdoors seeing how, how we worked with the land. Uh, it was a small hobby farm, it was, wasn't a large farm, but but you, you you gained an experience about what it's like to be in nature. And growing up, we had a lot of family trips uh, to go on day hikes or to go on overnight camping trips. And I think part of that just gave me this, this experience about how magical it is at times to be able to escape our cities and to, to get a, a change of pace and to refresh and re-energize in nature, but also to realize at times how, how vulnerable nature is, given the kinds of activities that we undertake as a part of our civilization. So, so I think there was that, that sort of growing uh, growing up experiences that helped, helped inform and influence how I wound up uh, working on environmental issues today.
0: Is there a teacher or a couple of teachers who said the right word at the right time, opened the door that took you down a certain path?
1: So I think there's a, there's a couple of moments. One was in, uh, in high school debate. And uh, I remember the, uh, I think it was my sophomore year of high school, the debate topic that year was uh, oriented around Latin American political stability. And one of the cases that we spent a lot of time on focused on the problem of deforestation. And, and both how that was a reflection of some of, of the weak governance in a number of, of Amazonian uh, countries, but also how the risk associated with deforestation could further destabilize the region or even have adverse global impacts. And that's when I first started learning more, I think, about, uh, about climate change. Uh, and then I would say um, it was really influential starting off college. Um, I knew I had an interest in the environment. Uh, but I had a, a, a professor in my international environmental policy course who um, both inspired me, uh, but also sort of kept me focused on what I needed to do in terms of my coursework. Professor Mari-Lynn Miranda, who, who's now recently become the provost at Notre Dame University, someone who went from professor to advisor to mentor uh, and now friend. And, and in fact, we, we've, as, as researchers, I've co-authored together. Um, And and it's it's one of those things where you learn, I think, early on in in, in your college experience that there are these opportunities to develop what become lifelong relationships uh, with people who have the expertise in the areas that really attract you and motivate you and and excite you as uh, as a college student.
0: You were working as a special assistant to President Obama for energy and environment in 2009 and 2010. What were the challenges and takeaways from from that. I mean, that's a time that then, that was the economic crisis of the century. We've subsequently overtaken that. But at the time, uh, it felt like the world was disappearing under our feet.
1: It was, uh, when we were looking at sort of what was happening to the economy and how fast over the course of of really late summer into the fall of 2008, uh, the economic evidence that was coming out with every new data release was more and more scary and worse and worse than we thought. I, I, I had started working on what was then referred to as the quiet transition team. So this is the, the pre-election transition team. And um, we were being asked early on to start thinking about some ideas for how you might do sort of energy oriented or clean energy oriented economic stimulus. And early fall, we were thinking about the need for a stimulus package that might be measured on the order of say several hundred billion dollars. And then by the time we start meeting the weekend after uh, the election, and then move into the transition team offices, I think there's a sense in November that we're probably looking at least at a half a trillion dollar economic stimulus. Uh, By the time we're starting to negotiate with congressional staff in late December, the idea is that we're probably up to six or 700 billion. And a month later, by the time the House of Representatives is voting on a bill, there's a sense that. That initial bill, which was probably going to be on the order of $900 billion or more, might not be enough.
0: What did it feel like to be in these discussions when uh, $100 billion, which is itself plenty of money, uh, starts to grow
1: up towards uh, a towards trillion dollars? We had not experienced anything like this since the Great Depression. Um, political benchmarks, like are, are you willing to run a deficit measured in $100 billion or $200 billion is now dwarfed by the economic stakes we're facing then. And you're looking at how bad the unemployment rate is getting. And you start to think about what that means for people going hungry, what that means for people losing their houses, uh, what that means for people losing their health insurance. Uh, that that it, It's not just there's a lot of less money in the economy moving around. It's, it's not that we're running a huge deficit this year, which means we're accumulating debt that we'll have to pay down over time it does mean that people's lives are worse off it means that 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 some people are are going to be much worse off the challenge is you're facing this incredible uncertainty as the economy is falling faster than anyone had experienced before politics doesn't like uncertainty politicians don't like uncertainty and the idea that you say it could be this bad or it could be a lot worse they don't they don't like to sort of manage in that environment um, and and I think part of it is, is the challenge we face. And I think it's actually one of the important lessons when we think about where we are now. Things move so quickly in the end of 2008 and early 2009. Um, and we had to pull together most of what the work we did as an administration on cra- on working with Congress to craft that piece of legislation occurred before the president was inaugurated.
0: In the president's decision-making uh, for President Obama, how, how granular was the evidence that he was was working on. How granular was the proof that you were
1: putting in front of him for the propositions you were making? Well, you know, I think this is one of the challenges a president faces, which is they they need information to make their decisions, uh, but there's a risk of being paralyzed by too much information. And and I, I would say in this case, we were going through sort of a a list of different budget items, uh, and, and thinking through sort of what our spending priorities would be on them. And in some cases, he wanted to understand not just sort of what's the spend on this program or that one. Like, if we're scaling that back, what are we giving up?
0: Thus far, you've been talking to us as an economist would, but your particular value add in the Council of Economic Advisors was from the environmental side. So how do environmental factors come into the equation? How does one decide that that's one of the things that we're going to include as distinct from one of the things that is, as you said, just a luxury, that although it's something that would be important, that it's not going to get into the discussion. What's the way in which the environmental factors actually get included
1: in that economic discussion? You know, it began with the president, made a decision to do this on clean energy spending. So part of it is our challenge is to figure out, like, what makes sense that is both good for reducing emissions of greenhouse gases that promotes investment in clean energy technologies like renewable power and energy efficiency, but also can happen quickly um, so that you're able to stimulate economic activity and create jobs in the very near term. In fact, that's one of the challenges that, you know, there are a few things in the clean energy space that make sense from a climate standpoint that just doesn't move very quickly and just would not make sense from an economic stimulus standpoint. So you might say, in fact, there's a lot of talk back then about the nuclear power renaissance that, as it turned out, never really happened in America. But in the end, we decided not to do a big spend on nuclear power because building a nuclear power plant takes a long time to go through the licensing process. Another big issue is whether how much you invest in transmission lines. You know, the challenge when we think about wanting to reduce the carbon intensity of the power we produce in America, a lot of our best places in the country for solar or for wind are in places where there aren't many people. So some of the best wind power in the country is in the Dakotas, and some of the best solar in the country is in the desert southwest. So you need long-distance transmission to get that electricity to where the people live. But building transmission lines is another one of these things where you have to go through a lot of different permitting and licensing. There's the the NIMBY problem that people will challenge wanting to have a big transmission line built through their property or near their town. NIMBY meaning not in my backyard. Not in my backyard. And and so that that creates challenges in being able to make that investment happen quickly. So so that's part of it is in the near term, you're trying to think through, we know we have to have an economic stimulus package. We know we have to think about this as a part of the American recovery effort. What can we do that satisfies both objectives? To be able to stimulate job creation and uh, invest in uh, climate friendly technologies. I
0: remember, all the talk in 2009 was
1: for shovel ready projects. So, can you
0: give us a good example of one shovel ready project that made its way into the Recovery
1: Act that you played a role in? So, I, I would say um, the sort of most, biggest impact we had on clean energy in the, Re- in the Recovery Act was in promoting the investment in wind and solar technologies. So today in America, we have about four times as much wind power capacity as we did in 2008. We have about a hundred times as much solar capacity now as we did in 2008. Solar looked attractive to us because we looked at say residential installation of solar and we thought about the kinds of workers who would be employed for those tasks many of them had the same skills as those who were involved in home building. And with the housing market collapse that helped precipitate the financial crisis, we saw home building uh, demand uh, decrease significantly. So we thought this is a way to absorb people with those skills and those trades into something that is a clean energy investment. So I think that was, that's an example of one where we saw a lot of, of solar installations going, a lot of wind power being built out. I think they also have also helped sort of reduce the cost of these technologies. So now it's much cheaper to install solar on rooftops or to uh, build a solar farm for utilities, it's much cheaper to build a, a wind farm today. And I think by creating the market for these technologies, we enable the manufacturers to to learn and drive down their cost. And, and so we're able to enjoy the benefits today of some of the investments we made back in 2009.
0: So now we're a decade later, and I suspect You never thought your expertise of thinking about climate change investments in time of economic crisis would be needed again or relevant again quite so quickly. You're not sitting uh, in the Oval Office in meetings right now, I gather, but you are doing a lot of interesting work about climate change investments in a future economic stimulus and recovery program. I guess I'm asking you two sets of questions. The first is to offer an evaluation and critique of what's been done, and then the other is on the assumption that Uh, Majority Leader Schumer, uh, uh, Minority Leader Schumer and Majority Leader uh, uh, McConnell uh, sat down with you with Speaker Pelosi, and they said, Joe, tell us what to do. What should be in the bill? Let's start with the first piece. How would you evaluate and critique the stimulus legislation that's been done so far, and particularly in terms of opportunities for climate change investments?
1: So I think the first thing that's important is to distinguish between what I would describe as disaster relief and what I would describe as stimulus. And that is to say, stimulus, we're trying to get people who are unemployed and at home out of their homes and at the workplace, being uh, creative and productive with their labor, earning a paycheck, being able to pay their rent or pay their mortgage and feed their families and contributing to economic output. In this case, because the pandemic is ongoing, some of the initial efforts of spending were intended to create an incentive for people not to go to work and increase the risk of exposure or the risk of exposing someone else to the coronavirus. And you know, the fact that we're still in the midst of the pandemic, what's going to be continued opportunities for spending is really to help, I think, families and businesses deal with short-term cash flow needs when we're actually hoping, from a public health perspective, to reduce some of that economic activity that contributes to the risk. I want to distinguish sort of what we're doing now, what we've been doing since March as really kind of a a disaster relief. It's it's kind of like an aid that you're giving, like you might do after a natural disaster, except that it's a nationwide natural disaster. Once we've been able to manage this this pandemic, then we're going to find ourselves in a situation where the unemployment rate is probably going to be higher than what it was in 2008, 2009, uh, where we're going to have faced a lot of bankruptcies among businesses Uh, And then I think we need to think about a major economic recovery and stimulus package. Now, some of my friends in the environmental community have been frustrated that what we've been spending and what I describe as disaster relief has done very little that's oriented towards investments in climate. But in general, I, I think it's too soon to really be thinking about strategic investments one wants to make to address climate change in the disaster relief phase as opposed to when we move forward in the economic recovery phase. Now, when we go to that economic recovery phase, in a sense, we have an opportunity here that makes a stronger case for doing this than we did in 2009 for two reasons. One, the risk of climate change, I think, are much more dire now because of the lack of meaningful progress over the past decade in the United States and around the world in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. I think second, we recognize that there's value in uh, investing in improving our resilience and reducing our vulnerability to climate change. So there's some that we can do on infrastructure that makes a lot of sense. The third reason is an economic reason. It's really cheap for the federal government to borrow money now. The real rate on long-term bonds is negative. This is the time to borrow money and then pay it back uh, in the future because what it costs to the federal government to finance that spending is really, really cheap. This is a time in which you might wanna have a long stimulus program. You might even have a stimulus program that moves into an infrastructure program, so long as those interest rates stay really low.
0: Let's assume there's a little more stimulus uh, coming uh, before economic recovery. Is there gonna be political capital and economic capital for another substantial package, this time
1: economic recovery, as you suggest? I think that's really important and hard question. From an economic standpoint, with low interest rates, it, it's not gonna cost us that much to service the debt that's associated with a big recovery package. I think people have become a little bit nervous with the price tags uh, when they're looking at trillion dollar estimates from the previous bills and probably bills to come to try to keep the economy sort of you know going to some degree to help households uh, make ends meet and, and to keep businesses going. Um, but with low interest rates, this really is the time to do that kind of spending. The challenge though, is I think politically, we're already getting some hints of this from Washington. Uh, and I think some of this may be a function of what happens in November. Uh, there may be a pushback uh, against a large economic recovery package uh, in the new year. And concerns about the debt being out of control is, is probably gonna rear its head again, uh, even after about four years where we haven't heard much uh, of that argument.
0: And some of this is going to be a dynamic issue in a dynamic time, because between now and the fall, we'll find out many things about who controls both houses of Congress and who controls the White House. And that will probably influence
1: all of this as it rolls into 2021. That's certainly true. Uh, And then depending on what happens in the Senate, we'll have this kind of debate over what's going to be the future of the filibuster and what that means for a a legislative program going forward. But I I think we're going to find ourselves in a situation where we're going to have really consequential debates on a number of issues uh, that are really about what we are as a nation and what we want to be. Uh, and, and I think about that when I think about some of the the threats I've seen to, to our democracy in recent years and how we try to address those in the next administration. But also, what does it mean in terms of how we think about an American economy that is more resilient to risk, whether it's a future coronavirus or whether it's climate change? And how do we think about building that new economy and that new society that is also more inclusive to address, I think, a lot of the societal concerns that have been raised over the course of 2020.
0: Now, I know for many of our listeners at this point, they're thinking to themselves, this is the part that's going to be dry and uninteresting. But of course, the truth of the matter is that for most people, this is the space where they interact with the federal government more than any other, whether they know it or not. You've written and spoken about the ways in which cost-benefit analysis is not only an important part of regulatory policy, but it's actually necessary for democracy. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, I think you know the important thing when, when we think about the role of regulation and the role of governments basically saying the markets aren't working, uh, they're not doing as good as we'd like them to do. Uh, And so we're gonna intervene in that market. We're gonna bring a regulation to bear. We're gonna change the way businesses operate. Uh, Ideally, we're doing that in a way that actually makes the economy stronger. Uh, It it increases uh, uh, the welfare of our society. It makes us as people better off. And the challenge though is that if you are, say, a business or a trade association or someone who has a stake in a regulation, you have an incentive to try to influence the regulator to do your bidding, uh, to deliver some kind of economic value in your interest. And and the challenge is, this is what we sometimes refer to as the problem of regulatory capture. Uh, and so the opportunity though, that, that benefit cost analysis provides us is to be able to sort of shed light on what government is doing when it decides to design and implement a new regulation. Is it doing something just to benefit some business cronies who give money to a political campaign? Or are they doing it because when they look at the evidence, this regulation actually makes our society better off, um, meaning the benefits are greater than the cost? So I, th- I think there's this value in this kind of transparency in the analysis.
0: Let me take you from the domestic policy context now into the global policy context. Can we in the 21st century meaningfully talk about environmental policy in a domestic sense, or does it have to be global policy and involve global engagement? I know you were involved in the Kyoto Accords back in your first um, stint in government in the late 90s. Uh, Is there any way to talk about environmental policy without talking about it globally today?
1: It's an important two-way street. We have to, in order to deal with the threats posed by climate change, work with major countries, and small countries alike around the world. Eventually, we're going to have to get the world's emissions of greenhouse gases down to zero and potentially on net negative. We actually have to start sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere uh, because we've pumped too much of it already up there. So we have to work with countries around the world. No single country is going to be able to solve this problem. But in order for us to be credible as a partner with other countries around the world, we have to get our own house in order. We have to be serious about what we do domestically in reducing our emissions. We have to be, I think, serious domestically about how we make investments in the research and development necessary to have better, more effective, lower cost technologies that we will use, but also that can be used by people around the world to help reduce their emissions. So, so we're not going to be up to the challenge of climate change, unless we're able to sort of work with and partner with countries around the world but we're not gonna be able to really make meaningful progress with those peers unless we're able to say, we understand the problem, and we're doing what we can here at home. And that, that's been, I think, one of the, the the major setbacks over the last three and a half years is the complete denial of of both the science and the politics. It's not just that the current administration has had a number of climate skeptics who say climate change is a hoax or doesn't merit any meaningful action. But it denies the politics of, of what's important to other countries around the world and how we need to work with them on issues that are important to them so that they will work on issues that are important to us. And so I think it's a failure to understand both the science and the, and the politics and the international relations of uh, climate change uh, that, that makes it all the more important going forward that we have a thoughtful, progressive, coherent strategy both for domestic action and international engagement in the next administration.
0: I know you have taught regulatory policy, environmental policy issues, so I'm going to give you a chance to create a little syllabus now for all, all of my listeners. Uh, what are the two or three environmentally related books or climate change books that you think an engaged citizen who cares about these issues
1: should have read? So the first book I would say is Climate Casino by Bill Nordhaus. Uh, Bill Nordhaus recently received the Nobel Prize in Economics for his contributions to understanding the macroeconomic impacts of climate change. Uh, and I think that book is a very well-written book that's accessible to a broad audience about how an economist thinks about climate change. My friend Scott Barrett at Columbia University has written a really nice book. It's, it's, it's been out for a while now about how we think about uh, uh, negotiating international environmental agreements and talks about just how hard it is and goes through the history of international environmental agreements. So whether it's on international whaling or prohibitions on hunting of seals uh, to dealing with stratospheric ozone depletion uh, under the Montreal Protocol or climate change. That's, I think, is also an excellent book as an economist who thinks about the challenge of getting everybody uh, together to tackle this problem. I'll give one more economics book. Uh, And that is uh, by my former colleague, Marty Weitzman and Gernot Wagner, Gernot, who's now at NYU, where they really help us, I think, better understand the economics of climate change, but understand catastrophic risk. And this is something where we start to sort of push up against the limits of economics. I think it's actually quite insightful for them to help us think through where economic reasoning makes sense and when we might need to think beyond economics. I think it gives us a better understanding, too, about why this problem is different than virtually any other kind of risk we've had to deal with uh, in, in the past. So I, I think all these gives one a better understanding of, of the economics of climate change and the risk of climate change, um, and then some, some ideas about what might be a, our policy response going forward. Joe, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Fred. It's been my pleasure.
0: This podcast is produced by Lantigua Williams & Co., Cedric Wilson is lead producer, Virginia Laura is managing producer, and Hadley Kelly is the Phi Beta Kappa producer on the show. Our theme song is Back to Back by Jan Perchik. To learn more about the work of the Phi Beta Kappa Society and our Visiting Scholar program, please visit pbk.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Fred Lawrence. Until next time.